Good evening, everybody. It's good to see everybody this evening. Our uh, opening hymn this evening will be 292, 292, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. So please stand. pray. Father, thank you that you've brought us each safely here to this place this evening. Open our hearts, minds, and souls to worship you. We pray for those who are not here with us today. For those that are sick, we ask for healing. For those away, we ask that you, your blessings be on them. We ask that you equip us, challenge us, Comfort us, teach us as we learn more about you this evening. Father, be with Pastor Tony as he shares with us the message you've placed upon his heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, in the way, in the way of announcements, uh, we do have the, the, the children's choir that's going to be here uh, July the 29th, and I still do need some homes to house those the kids so i would just it's it's not a big deal you only have to uh to have the kids and one adult for for one evening feed them breakfast the following morning and that's it so it's a sunday evening they would be be staying with us so uh, i was just telling the deacons that uh this really is a an operation christmas child area event so there'll be numerous churches that will be here so I, i'm hoping that we can support that event uh here with our our church well because there will be a lot of other outside people 
potentially here that evening for that particular event. Uh, there is the announcement there in the bulletin about grief share and, uh, you know, uh, contact Wayne if you are uh, interested or have someone that would be interested in that. Uh, VBS is upcoming also, and Lacey up there needs teachers and helpers. So if you have done that in the past and haven't been contacted yet, you know, please contact Lacey ASAP so that we can finalize our teachers and helpers for that particular event. Uh, and, I, and I see that the, uh, the teens are having an activity on June the 7th. It's, it's, they're going to wear uh, dark clothes. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it sounds a little suspicious to me. So, <laughs> so, but at least it's not uh, it's not late in the evening. So, uh, birthdays. Do we have any birthdays? No birthdays. How about anniversaries? Boy. So, okay. Uh, well, then, if in that case, we'll have the uh, the offering at this time. Father, we just thank you for these gifts, these tithes that were brought forth this evening. We just pray that uh, they might be used to, to spread the message of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you again for, uh, for those that have uh, brought their tithes and offerings this evening. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good evening. Good evening. Or good evening from the front row. I guess nobody else really cares. That's all right. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, if you turn to the last chapter of Hosea, Hosea chapter 14, tonight is our, uh, the last sermon from this series through the book of Hosea. Um, next, for the next two weeks on Sunday evenings, we'll have two I think standalone messages and then we'll pick up, uh, then my family and I will be on vacation and we'll miss those next two Sundays, but then when we get back uh, that evening we'll start with Genesis, God willing. So Hosea is a book that tells the story of Israel's unfaithfulness to God, but as we dug into it we found that it is also the story of all humanity's unfaithfulness to God. We are like 
humanity is like an adulterous bride who spurns the love of God to go after other lovers and suitors who use and abuse us, who cannot sustain or provide for us, who do not love or care for us, who don't give but only take from us. Since this is the case, Hosea is not only a story of God's impending judgment on Israel through the nation of Assyria, which did happen. Uh, The northern kingdom of Israel was eradicated by the Assyrian invasion, but of God's coming and final judgment against the world, which will be much, much worse and even more deserved, which is precisely what makes the central message of Hosea shine so brightly. For even though we are like an adulterous wife, God's love for his people is relentless. And so all along through this great book, woven into the threats and warnings about coming judgment, the heart of God was revealed. A love that one day will draw and restore from his heart, who despite being wounded, is tender and compassionate. So we close our study tonight in the final chapter of Hosea, chapter 14. If you remember, God said in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, that he would allure Israel and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There he will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Then in 2.19 and 20, he promised to betroth her to himself forever in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and in mercy and in faithfulness, so that she will finally know him. And chapter 14 now is the song through which God will do this alluring, tender, loving and faithful work by which he will gather all his people to himself. And so there's one reason that the book of Hosea ends with Israel still rebellious, but with God still promising complete and perfect restoration. And it's that our God is full of relentless love for sinners. He pursues us until He wins us and becomes for us everything through which we are joined to Him forever. So before we start, let me pray for us. Father, I ask tonight that you would open our hearts to hear and understand and believe your word. Father, would you help me to speak clearly? I pray, Father, that your word might be understood tonight, and I pray, Father, that you would help everyone to listen so that Christ may be believed upon, Lord, ultimately to your glory. And these things we ask and pray in his name. Amen. So here is this climactic call to adulterous Israel. Keep that in mind. It is the basis of our salvation that God is like this. These are God's final words through Hosea for a bride that in essence is still with another man. Let me read the first three verses of chapter 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to Him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. Here's the heart of the matter. right? This is what God is telling His people to say to Him through His prophet. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses and we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. So God moves graciously towards Israel to call her back one last time. 
The return in verse 1 is literally to turn. This is how they can completely undo the coming judgment and turn it from themselves, even at the last minute. Come back home to God. Take with you words, he says to them in verse 2. Say something to your God. You hear that? Speak. Talk to Him. Look at the text. Ask for forgiveness. Begin with confession and repentance. Picture what is being painted for us here. Because words, I thought words were cheap. Right? Words are cheap, especially in a marriage. Words are cheap, aren't they? Especially if they're coming from a spouse who has cheated on you. Imagine, as God has described, catching them in the act, as God had Israel throughout the entire book. And yet, what does God require of His adulterous bride? Just ask me to forgive you, and I will do it. Think about what's behind that. Think about the depth of our God, that that's all He is ultimately asking. He loves this bride. Offer words to me like you were offering all your sacrificial bowls. Make your words be your sacrifices to me. Speak to me. Remember, it's Hosea that reveals God doesn't really desire all the rituals and ceremonies. They aren't the end. They aren't the point. Just look me in the eye and return to me, he finally says. I'll take you back. Verse 2 is an invitation to Israel to just come back to the table and talk with him. In verse 3, he tells them to finally renounce this false sense of security they went looking for in Assyria and went looking for in their false idols. It will always seem like security can be found in the nearest superpower, right? That's what Assyria was to Israel in their time. And the presence of strength and power and wealth, as we have seen throughout this book, tend to make faith in God as our all very difficult. Right When you have those things, faith is hard to come by. That's part of why Israel has committed such shameful adultery. The pull of the world was too strong. God tells them to say to him, I want to hear you say it, we trust no longer in these things. We renounce their horses, right? A symbol of military might in the time of Hosea. Do you see all this mercy? It's just, 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 this is how you can come back to me. Say these things, and I'll listen to you. What, what is that? It's mercy. It's mercy. There is immeasurable love behind this. God is the one that is going to judge them. Assyria is just the instrument he'll use to carry it out. Well, Assyria can't protect Israel from God. So God presents himself to them as their rescue, as their security. His love for them is like the love of a father for this orphan, this fatherless child, this daughter of a prostitute. There is mercy to be found in her God. This is the song they should have sung To God, forgive us, take away our iniquity. Assyria can't save us. The works of our hands can't save us. The gods we've made for ourselves, they're nothing. Be merciful to us. Take us back. That's all they had to do. What is wrong with humanity that they don't just make the obvious choice? Right? What's wrong with us? That should have been their song for God. And had it been, what would God's song have been that He would sing back to them? That's verses 4-8. through I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. That's huge. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns 
Sorry, I turned one too many pages. Verse 6. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. So God would respond to their turning with the song of His turning in verse 4. His turning away His anger from them. He would turn away from destroying Ephraim. We've seen this all throughout Hosea. Right? God's judgment is right at the door, about to be unleashed, and at the last moment, sometimes often in the same stanza, where He's proclaimed judgment, He'll offer mercy, He'll hold out hope. And as a result of God's turning from anger, instead of dying, they'll flourish. He'll become like dew to them. Don't miss that image. We're going to come back to it. He will make them blossom. They shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. Their shoots will spread out. Their beauty will be like a ripe olive tree. Their fragrance like the harvest of Lebanon. They'll dwell under God's shadow, flourishing like grain, blossoming like a vine. Their fame will be like the wine of Lebanon in the world at that time. God will make them flourish like nothing else ever could. His point is that God is showing Himself once more to be superior to any alternative they could have desired or went after. Right? He's superior to them. It made no sense for them to seek for security or peace or prosperity or salvation in anyone or anything else. God is superior to everything. That's why Lebanon is mentioned three times in verses 5-7. to seven. God is speaking wisely to them. Lebanon was where Baal worship came from in Israel in the first place. It was introduced to Israel through Lebanon when Ahab married the wonderful Jezebel, right? The daughter of the priest king of Sidon, which is now Lebanon, Ethbaal. She was his daughter. All along, Israel had thought they could only flourish if they trusted in Baal. But only God can save them. Only God can secure them. Only God can make them fruitful, even in the place that for them was a place of adultery. It was barren ground. That's what verse 8 promises. The sustaining, saving, securing presence of God. And so we read in verse 9, Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. All throughout Hosea, what's been clear? Israel's unfaithfulness, it's undeniable. God's righteous judgment, undeniable. But also, God's passionate love and mercy. So... Since that's the case, this is what is wisdom in a fallen world. Turn to the Lord who is like this. That's wisdom. Seek His mercy or we will stumble into destruction. That's the closing word of Hosea. Now, something heavily implied throughout Scripture to this point and beyond, but revealed explicitly in the book of Hosea, is the fact that God is pursuing a faithful bride. He has always been pursuing 
of faithful people, a bride who will love Him, worship Him, trust Him, believe in Him, and never turn from Him. The urgency of that is multiplied in Hosea, however, when we see that not only will the nation of Israel fail to become that, but according to the prophet, this is what all humanity has failed to be and to do. And it's crucial to remember then, as we reflect on Hosea, that Israel is only doing what every descendant of Adam does. The whole world has spurned its merciful and sufficient and loving Creator. Israel never repented of this. The northern kingdom was destroyed. In fact, Israel's final response to God under the Old Covenant was to reject God's Messiah, His ultimate offer of mercy that was personified by His Son, Jesus Christ. That's why, remember, isn't this how Jesus spoke to Israel? As a what? A wicked and adulterous generation. Who did He claim to be? The bridegroom. Throughout His ministry, their house was forsaken as the rebellion in Hosea reached its climax when they finally cried out, We have no king but Caesar. And their only Savior was crucified. But it doesn't end there. As the New Testament unfolds beyond the Gospels, we see Israel's DNA is in our DNA because we both share Adam's DNA. Where Israel was a wicked and adulterous generation, the whole earth is a wicked and adulterous creation. The whole thing in Revelation 19, 6-9, what's the name of the full embodiment of human society given over to the lust of the flesh? The great harlot. Right? That's the crescendo. That's what humanity is. We all pursue the satisfaction of our own flesh at all costs. The security and safety that money or earthly powers and governments promise us in James, all the way up in James chapter 4, verse 4, this adulterous heart that desires a home in this world is not just something that describes pagan nations, but every individual even inside the church. But God has made promises. How are those two things going to come together? How can the great and merciful promises in Hosea of restoration and returning ever be fulfilled? What people will ever be allured by God? Who will ever turn to Him? Who will ever be faithful? Who can ever sow righteousness and justice so that someone from humanity may finally reap steadfast love for the Lord? Is God letting Himself out for nothing? Like a pathetic husband continuing to pursue an ex-wife who's made it more than clear right in his face and everyone else's, that she wants nothing to do with him. How can God let Himself out like this? Beloved, look back at verse 8. O Ephraim, that's Israel in Hosea. What have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. The prophet Jonah in his own unique way, might have given the thesis statement of the whole Bible. In Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, salvation is of the Lord. What has God been requiring of Israel all throughout this book? And by extension, what do we realize He requires of us, of all humanity? What does God require of this world that we sow righteousness and justice and reap steadfast love for Him 
that he deserves, that he is worthy of, that pours out in unbroken and untainted worship of our only God and Creator, the Lord Himself. And in the last words of this great book, who does God reveal Himself to be? I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. He has required fruit for 14 chapters. Humanity, Israel, was bankrupt to provide it. And what's his last word? I am the tree. I will provide the fruit I require. How can God let himself out like this? How can he pursue a bride that couldn't love him as he deserved, even if she wanted to? Jesus Christ is how. He comes and makes it right, not us. He covers the deficiency. He covers the inabilities. He makes it all holy and righteous and good. God answers the very defect and inability of Israel, and therefore the world in His promise, I will heal their apostasy in verse 4. I will love them freely. That, that's one of the most comforting, hope-giving sentences in the entire Scripture. I will love them freely. I will not be angry at them anymore. How is God going to accomplish that? If that didn't come about by something they did, this nation that never returned to Him, how did it come about? When will it come about? When God becomes due. D-E-W. When God becomes due. When He makes them blossom. When He plants them so that they take root and spread out their shoots. When He makes them beautiful. Do you see? He will create the bride that is worthy of Him. When He makes them flourish and blossom and dwell underneath His shadow, God, the evergreen cypress that creates in us what He requires of us, does it all through the God-man, Jesus Christ. That's who He is, beloved, in Scripture over and over again. It's through Jesus who is the fulfillment of the promise made to every nation through Abraham that God finally obtains His goal of finding a faithful bride, a human being that gives him all that is rightfully his and realizes the purpose for which he was given to the world and through him, as we turn to him for mercy, grants all that perfect faithfulness and obedience he has produced to God and grants it to us. He, God the Father, is an evergreen tree for us in Christ. He can't be stopped. He can't be thwarted. Even even the crucifixion of Jesus did not end the mercy of God for the human race. It unleashed the mercy of God for the human race. All of Israel's rebellion in the world is summed up in that word, adultery. That's what, what Hosea is so almost offensively clear about. Well, why was marriage even created in the first place? That, that's running through the heart of all Hosea, of all Hosea. What was marriage ever created for in the first place? To be a human issue? Is that, is that really what it's about? To say something about human beings? No, beloved. No. The Apostle Paul reveals in Ephesians 5 that from the very beginning, the human institution of marriage has been present to illustrate a divine and eternal reality, right? 
this profound mystery through which God will achieve his intended design for creation, the marriage of Christ to his church. That, that, that's what marriage is ultimately about. God got everything he required from humanity from his son. God blessed him, honored him, raised him from the dead and is now making all his enemies into a footstool for his feet. And beloved, when he married us, we got his name and we got all his stuff. The righteousness and justice Jesus sowed and the steadfast love for God he reaped are all credited to our account. It's as though we did it all even though we did none of it because we have put on Christ God became a merciful tree for us in His Son at Calvary when you and I could produce nothing. You see what God becomes for us? This God who's required the reaping of steadfast love and righteousness all through this book becomes the tree. Becomes the tree. Becomes the source of our fruit. Here's how and why He can say, I will betroth you to me. Because I'm going to take care of everything. I will betroth you to me. He will capture us and draw us back and secure us in righteousness and justice and faithfulness and love forever. Not because we ever had the sufficient change of heart, but because God loves so deeply and so powerfully and so constantly that He will send this prince that will rescue this hopelessly evil damsel in distress and make her pure and clean, make her whole, dress her in new clothes that can never stain. The heart of God will not be broken forever, not because we shaped up and became trustworthy in this marriage, but because Jesus Christ has stood in our place. That is why, and it's only why, we read these beautiful words from Revelation 21. Verses 1 through 3. Then I saw at the end of all things a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. You see it all coming to fulfillment. And God himself will be with them as their God. If you skip down to verse 9, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of of the Lamb. And He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. The new Jerusalem doesn't rise from the sea, does it? She doesn't emerge from the ashes of the old Jerusalem and renew her commitment. She descends from heaven, from God, from the evergreen tree. The city that became a harlot is replaced with the perfect dwelling place of God as that which all creation has been pressing for and moving since the dawn of time will finally be realized. 
The church was rejoicing back in Revelation 19 because the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. And because His wife is finally prepared for the feast. Unlike the failed marriage of Israel to Yahweh. Unlike the delicate betrothal of the fickle Corinthians. Or the adulterous believers in James. This perfect union brings together a triumphant Lamb and a pure bride who is finally beyond the reach of sin and death and adultery. Why? Because God in Christ pursued His bride relentlessly until He won her at Calvary. She will be handed over by a loving Father once and for all one day, for all eternity in a land and in a kingdom where she will never again be subject to the pole of sinful flesh. Adultery will never again even be an option when all is said and done. God's relentless love accomplishes God's unbreakable promises for His people. It's here at the end of Hosea that the light shines brightest because Hosea is looking to the future. He's a prophet. One day, God will have His bride and all will finally be well. Everything sad will come untrue because God will make it so. He's not relying on us to do this. He's not relying on us to finally win ourselves back into His presence. He is the tree. He is the source. He is the lover and the husband who goes after the prostitute that He loves, finds her, brings her home, restores her, forgives her, washes her clean, and betroths Himself to her forever. See, we're, we're never really so clean that we aren't technically still ripe for judgment. Not when our husband is so pure and so worthy, but at the last moment, in the depth of our condemnation, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God finally appeared in our darkest hour after having commanded all the way back in the beginning, you better not let sin rule over you. Well, it did. So now what? Demanding that we produce fruit that is pleasing to Him. He becomes for us in our place an evergreen and merciful tree bearing all the fruit that He requires for us through a husband that He's given to us who cannot fail. We will see His face, beloved. We will look into His eyes. That's when you and I will be perfect. That's when you and I will never wander again. Why? Because we will see the face of the one who loves us. Think about that. It will be so unbelievably profound and alluring to our souls that there will never be condemnation or sin to ever appear in the new heavens and the new earth. Why? Because we'll finally be able to see Him. We'll be able to look Him in the eye. He pursues us until He wins us and becomes for us everything through which we are joined to Him forever. In the midst of adultery, God relentlessly continues to pursue and love His bride. And as Scripture unfolds, we realize He 
will achieve it. He will accomplish it. He will become the fruit-bearing tree to stand in place of never bearing fruit for Him, humanity. This is Christ, our faithful, perfect, and true husband. We're going to sing in just a moment. I would encourage you tonight, if this is not the God that you know, if you've never come to Him, come to Him. God is holy beyond description and loving beyond compare, and so He is our only hope. And He's provided for us perfect salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. He's not calling you to straighten up and fly right and earn your way in. He's calling us to bank on who He is for us and believe it by faith. Let's pray. Father, I ask that You would enable us to trust in You. You would enable us to believe in You and to believe Your Word that You have given to us, Father, that is all sure and yes in Jesus Christ, Your Son. God, we thank You for the book of Hosea. We thank You for the message that You have proclaimed in these pages that was so hard to hear sometimes about the depth of sin and adultery against the backdrop of Your perfect holiness and yet to see running through it all Your irrevocable love for those You call Your own people. And so, Father, I pray that we would, by Your Word, embrace You, that Your Spirit would move amongst us now to convince us and convict us that You are the truth. Father, we ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'll be down front.